I'm Matthew Gwyver, the editor of Management Today, and um, it's good to see all of you here today to discuss what's probably one of the kind of hottest topics around at the moment. Um, It's extraordinary, isn't it, that that the word bonus, which the classicist among you will remember comes from the word for the Latin for good man, has um, degenerated in the way it has to the point where when discussing the bonuses of his staff in front of Congress recently, Edward Liddy of AIG has said that they've actually received lurid death threats, including a vow to garrote staff with piano wire who are in receipt of the bonuses. Of course, here in the UK, we do things rather less exotically. We just go and break people's windows and smash their Mercedes up outside their house when we have an issue with their bonuses. But um, we've got a brilliant panel of speakers here today, all of whom are going to speak for about five uh, minutes on the subject, and then we're going to throw it open to the floor. So first, uh, I'd like to welcome Sir Peter Vigors, MP, who's the Conservative MP for Gosport, and he's a member of the Treasury Select Committee. Peter. Uh, Since Eat What You Kill incentivised our forebears, there's been a long record of linking reward to effort. A successful Roman general could look forward to a a, a parade called a, a triumph. And in 18th century Britain, the navy was more profitable than the army because of prize money. But slowly, from the 16th century onwards, um, business was catching up with war as a way of making a large amount of money. Uh, These capitalists were merchants and manufacturers. Working for someone else, uh, being an employee, was not a road to riches. This was gradually changing in the 1960s and 1970s um, with the evolution of financial services. The improvement of communications made it possible to make significant profits from financial institutions, and they needed clever people, and they bought the very best people. And these might be people who otherwise might set up their own companies. Then, of course, in the 1980s onwards, the huge expansion of financial markets originate to distribute very clever derivatives, some of which are so clever that people running the banks didn't actually understand them, black box investment, boom, boom, high gearing, vast amounts to be made, And people were saying, we need the very cleverest people. How do we get the very cleverest people into our bank, pay them what they need? And so the bonus culture. Not a tip for the waiter or a Christmas box. This is really seriously big money. Um, We're talking about huge extra lumps of money for making money for the bank. You know, if the bank is making, if an individual can make 50 or 100 million pounds for the bank, why begrudge him one, five, 10 million pounds Personally, And then, of course, we got to August 2007, when we hit the buffers. Um, We started looking again at uh, the problems. We realized we'd been uh, enjoying, if that's the right word, financial exuberance. And uh, problems emerged, marked to market for trading books, um, and a huge anger at bonuses. And we've seen this extraordinary situation in the United States. You have to remember that in the United States... Members of Congress have to stand for election every two years. So the day after election, they're worrying about two things. One is fundraising for the next election. The second is is keeping keeping in with their electors. And so so the challenge. Um, And let's not underestimate the problem because the Marxist philosophy from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs is actually more attractive philosophy. It sounds like a more moral philosophy. So capitalism itself is on trial. 
the justification for capitalism is that it works. Um, socialists argue about cutting up the cake. Capitalists are more interested in making the cake bigger. So capitalism is on trial and we must win. What are the principles? Well, there are some jobs for which a bonus is not appropriate at all. Um, all the employee wants is a fair reward. There is a strong argument for varying pay if you have income which is variable. So that's an advantage for a bonus. Some individuals can be incentivized, some groups can be incentivized, and um, incentives can bring into banking or financial institutions people who would otherwise be working somewhere else. Then you have to examine what kind of incentive, should it be money, shares, stock, and then over what time frame, should it be an annual bonus or should it be over, say, three years, because it should be sustainable. Basic principles. Bonus payments should be necessary. No point in paying one if it's not necessary. It should be geared to success, and it should be sustainable. So we need strong, hard-headed remuneration committees. Um, I'm not going to punch the sky and give you a, 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 a line for tomorrow's newspaper. What we do need to do is to think further about bonuses. There will be a period during which it will be under tremendous pressure, but at the end of the day, bonuses have an important part to play in our remuneration system. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, our next speaker is Tim Harford, who you'll know as the undercover economist at the FT, but he's also a media fellow here at CAS. Tim. Thank you very much. So, I feel a little uncomfortable with the, the way that the topic has been posed, that the whole idea of bonus culture, it seems so vague. We don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about bonus culture. I mean, possibly this is because I'm an economist, and for most economists, culture is something you find in yogurt and nowhere else. But still, I, 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 th I think <clears throat> we'd be much better off if we could focus on some specific questions. And the, the question that I'm most interested in is, have the way that bonuses been, have been paid in the financial sector, have those bonuses encouraged excessive risk-taking? So not just the case of, well, these guys messed up and they got rich and that offends against our sense of justice. Of course it does. But those guys messed, off, messed up because of the way that they were being incentivized to get rich. That's the question I... And I don't know the answer, but that's the question I think we really need to focus on. I think it's certainly true that bonuses can encourage excessive risk-taking. And people do respond to incentives. I know, I know I sound like a tedious old economist when I say people respond to incentives, but they really do. Let me give you an example. Benjamin Franklin, uh, when he said, in life nothing can be said to be certain but death and taxes. One of the most famous things he said, rather poignant, he, he wrote that in a letter to a friend a month before he died, an old, old man who knew he was dying. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Of course, he was wrong. Uh, we know he was wrong because of what the Australian government did in um, the late 1970s. They announced that they were abolishing inheritance tax, effective 1st of July 1979. Um, now, something very strange happened to the death rate in late June <laughs> 1979 in Australia. It's, it started to fall. And then the moment the 1st of July deadline passed and inheritance tax had gone away, the death rate suddenly surged. And two, two Australian economists, Joshua Gans and Andrew Lee, estimate that about 1 in 20 of the people who should have died in June actually died in July. Or at least that's what their medical certificates said. 
And um, <laughs> we'll, we'll never know the truth. And since only one in ten people were eligible for inheritance tax, it seems that about half of the people um, who were eligible for tax managed to avoid paying it by dying later. So both, ta both death and taxes are avoidable, at least for a while. Um, similar example, Margaret Mitchell, Gone with the Wind. Death, taxes, and childbirth. There's never a convenient time for any of them. Well, she's also wrong, and we know this because the Australian government, again, in 2003, announced with six weeks' notice that it would pay a baby bond to the family uh, of any baby born after 1st of July 2003. And something very strange happened to the birth rate in late June 2003. It fell dramatically, and on the last day of June 2003, uh, there was a baby drought. On the 1st of July 2003, the birth rate doubled, and um, this is, it's still a record. It's the largest number of happy events on a single day that Australia has ever seen. So whether, whether people are leaving life or entering it, they respond to incentives. So we do need to focus a lot on what incentives bonuses give people, because they will respond. And if you, if you give people a one-way bet, they'll respond to that one-way bet. Uh, they're, they're very happy to do so. Uh, and there's a, there's a very large economic literature on this. Well, the most recent thing I've seen examines how weightlifters respond to incentives. And the great thing about weightlifting is you can tell when somebody's taking more risk uh, because they will try and lift a higher increment. So, and, they, and they do respond to incentives if they're out of the medals in a big tournament, but they might be able to get into the medals, they will take much bigger risks. And that's exactly what you would expect. Uh, the trouble is, when it comes to finance, it's very hard to see what risks people are really taking. We try, we, we, we do our best, but often, and certainly in the current climate, we discover that people have taken very large risks only after the risks don't pay off. My not terribly well-informed opinion in this particular case is that I think bonuses have contributed to the credit crunch. I think they have contributed to greater risk-taking, but I don't think they're the key cause of it. I think I would point to... Uh, excessive leverage in the banks and so on. But these things are all tied together and I'm not the, I'm not the world's greatest expert on this. Um, the second thing I think it's worth thinking about very briefly is why do we get these bonuses? Both, both bonuses that, that are offensive because some of these bonuses are offensive and also bonuses that directly contributed to instability. Why do we get them? You wouldn't have thought that shareholders were terribly keen either to overpay their employees, their executives, or to pay them to take risks, excessive risks with shareholder capital. So it's a, it's a puzzle. And I think the, the simplest way of thinking about this is, well, it's a bit like what happens when you go to a restaurant um, with 40 other people for some large event and you're splitting the, the bill. And you know you can't really exercise any control over what other people order, which will be champagne and lobster. You can't really exercise control over what the uh, waiting staff bring. I once went to a very, very fancy restaurant uh, in the West End with a fairly large group of people. And I, I'm sure that you know, someone would order a salad, they'd bring four salads. Uh, bottles of wine were opened and placed on the table and never drunk. But, but really, nobody, nobody really wanted to make a fuss because there were so many other people there. And you were thinking, well, that bottle of wine's 15 pounds, so that's 25 pence for me. So I'll just, I won't worry about it. I, I, I described this in, in The Logic of Life, which is available in all good bookshops at the moment. <laughs> Authors always respond to incentives. Um, I didn't realise how important it was going to become, because that splitting the bill 
uh, effect, I think, cause, causes a large problem because any individual shareholder, they're not going to fuss about the pay of the, the CEO as long as the CEO is able to pay himself or get his friends on the executive committee to pay him uh, in a way that doesn't attract due attention. And in the dot-com bubble, that was stock options that were reloadable and backdatable back and all kinds of other things. Uh, now we're discovering pensions are a great way to get paid an awful lot of money uh, and own, people only notice you've got a grotesquely large pension when it's too late. Um, so we need to do better. It's interesting to discover, economists who've looked at this find that when a company has a very large shareholder, a family shareholder, for example, that they, there is much more discipline over linking CEO pay to performance. That's uh, Marianne Bertrand and Central Mulinathan, two American economists. I think that's an important result. It suggests that maybe the government could do better. I mean, now, now the US government owns 80% of AIG. Now the British government owns, well, I don't know, of RBS. Effectively, we own all of these institutions. In principle, we could do better, right? Because we can, we can monitor and we can exercise control. And I, and I think that what we've discovered over the last couple of weeks is governments are not going to do better. They're really not going to do better because governments only care what makes the front pages of the popular newspapers. And they don't really care how these bonuses were agreed in what circumstances the bonuses were agreed. They don't care whether the bonuses were paid to the people who caused the trouble or whether the bonuses are paid to the people who came in, I think rather heroically, took a lot of, uh, took a lot of grief to try to clear up the trouble. So I don't think government's going to make a better job of it, but we somehow need to find a way to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Tim, thank you. <clears throat> Our next speaker is Tracy Corrigan, who's an assistant editor and business commentator at the Telegraph, Tracy. Thank you. Um, I think describing it as, the, as a bonus culture is actually the, precisely the right way to describe it um, because it's not the same as talking about whether bonuses per se are a good or a bad thing. A bonus culture, I think, by definition, is one where the payment of the bonus has come to be taken for granted and where it's come to be a focal point for employees so that it, it obscures for them many other aspects of their jobs which should be more important. And I think that's the culture that did become prevalent in the city and in Wall Street in the last 20 years and spread to the upper reaches of the corporate world, though not generally to the, to the middle and lower tier, tiers. Uh, like Tim, I think it did create some perverse incentives which contributed to the financial crisis. Um, I think that I can see that in, from two directions. One is that there's an obvious <coughs> linkage between the bonus uh, incentives that were created, the risks that, were, uh, that that encouraged bankers to take, the ability of banks to make enough profit in order to pay those bonuses because of low interest rates and because it turns out they had artificially inflated profits because they were taking too much risk. So I think there's sort of a, a, a vicious circle in terms of how that functioned financially. But I think the other thing about it is that if you talk to people who work in the city who receive bonuses but are otherwise perfectly decent people, they will tell you about the corrosive effect that that had on their working environment. I mean, I think it's sort of patently obvious that that might be the case, given that we were talking about investment banks hiring staff on multi-year, multi multi-million bonuses, regardless of what their future performance was going to be and rewarding young traders, for example, with retirement plans for making short-term profits on risky assets, often without assessing those assets. And the arguments that were given, as, as Tim was, was saying with his restaurant example, you know, may have made sense for one manager heading one department, 
but they certainly didn't for the, for the company, for the bank as a whole, nor for the safety of the entire banking system. But I think the, the thing that, that, that happened when you talk to sort of people who worked in that environment is that they spent an inordinate amount of time in the run-up to being paid their bonuses, plotting to get the biggest bonus possible. This would involve uh, finding a potential job to jump to, for example, so that one could leak to one's colleagues and therefore to one's boss that one had an offer of X million from X bank, um, and if you didn't get X Y million in bonus, then you would sort of jump and, and leave possibly with 10 people in your team, which would then make your, put your manager in a terribly difficult position because he's not going to be able to make any money in his department next year. Um, there's also sort of lots of, uh, lots of people tell me about how, um, you know, as managers, they have, uh, you know, basically they're sort of desperately trying, spending, you know, hours and hours trying to work out how much can I get away with paying X in order for him not to jump ship. So I sort of think the idea that this bonus culture was somehow uh, part of a wealth generation system that is part of a sort of healthy capitalist system, as, as Peter was talking about, um, you know, is, is, is misplaced, um, you know, on a, on a very, very simple an academic level, an awful lot of time, I think, was wasted worrying about how big a bonus one was going to get. And really, I think it's taken quite a while for bankers to, to for, or for us to all realise that really those multi-million pound packages were not the result of bankers being very clever people or even of big profits being generated by those banks. They were a sort of bizarre twist of the way that industry functioned in that time, which was you know, not an accurate reflection of their economic Productivity. It was a reflection of artificially inflated returns in the banking system. Uh, I think bankers, given that they're always very good at spotting um, what's wrong in other industries, have been particularly poor at uh, applying that logic to their own. I mean, they think they're always rather good at sort of looking at the steel industry and saying, well, let's shed 20% of jobs over there, or, you know, looking at, at auto workers and sort of saying, oh, yes, well, they need to take a pay cut next year. They seem to have found it pretty tricky to apply those skills to their own to their own industry. Nevertheless, here we are, profits, uh, well, I was going to say profits are slashed, but actually they're not really in profit at the moment, most of them. Uh, costs are going to have to be cut and jobs slashed. I think that is going to help actually recalibrate. The, the, I mean, I think the bonus culture has, to, has temporarily gone. What we don't know is whether it'll come bouncing back again when profits return. But what surprises me is that even now I hear bankers referring to the need of restraint in, in bonuses, so they get that much. But they talk about it in terms of big bonuses being politically unacceptable, as if there's sort of some mad political correctness being imposed by sort of left-wing lunatics, whereas actually it's not simply that it's political, politically unacceptable to pay big bonuses at banks which have just been paid out by the taxpayer. It's just economic nonsense. Um, and I have a theory, unlike Tim, I do no actual research on these things, but uh, I have a theory that perhaps too little productive work for too much money can numb the brain. And uh, that's the explanation for the, some of the staggering misjudgments that we've seen even you know, in the midst of this dreadful crisis. We've seen John Thane spending a million dollars refurbishing his offices at Merrill Lynch, or Sandy Weil making the somewhat ill-judged decision to use the Citigroup corporate jet for a family holiday in Mexico. So I think maybe if we stop paying them so much money, they'll also make slightly sounder, sounder decisions. I would, however, accept that bonuses per se are not a bad thing. Uh, but I do think there are huge pitchfalls. And I'm not convinced that the solutions being, being suggested 
uh, will solve those problems. Uh, paying in shares, well, Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers uh, owned an enormous number of Lehman shares. Everybody, Lehman was very, very widely, the most widely held Wall Street firm by <coughs> employees. Uh, that didn't stop it going under. And in fact, you could argue that Dick Fold's uh, very strong allegiance to the firm, partly through the ownership of shares made it harder for him to accept a lower price for those shares at a moment when he could have sold the company and kept it going as a viable concern. So I think that share ownership is, can be a very positive thing, but it can have unforeseen consequences as well. Um, I don't favour, um, although I don't, know, I don't know that that's really, really, really sort of seriously being, being suggested, but I don't favour a crude cap on bonuses. Uh, I think the FSA's current idea, which is to charge banks uh, by requiring extra capital be set, to be set aside if they want to pay bonuses that the FSA doesn't like the look out of, is, is, is quite a good idea. However, um, my experience of banks and bankers leads me to believe that already at this moment, before these, these um, systems have even been set up, they are you know, get in rooms over cups of coffee, poring over ways of getting around any bonus controls that will ever be set up. So I do think it's going to be a long and arduous struggle to get a grip on this. Tracy, thank you. Our next speaker is, is Alan Lehman, who's the Chief Executive of the MCA, the Management Consultants Association. Thank you. Uh, Matthew, let's start, let's start by agreeing that um, we're all angry. Um, it's the, the, the emotion of the moment. Every time I switch on a television or read a newspaper, there's somebody else being angry. Uh, about it. Some of it is synthetic, but most of it is genuine and deeply felt, and it results, as others have said, in people bashing in cars and windows. And even now, uh, one of the RBS insurance companies is no doubt processing Sir Fred's claim uh, <laughs> um, and using taxpayers' money to pay it. <laughs> so there's a lot to be angry about. Let's, let's, also, let's also agree uh, that uh, there have been some examples, many examples, of appallingly bad practice that have grown up, and I'm thinking not just of the financial services, but all uh, elsewhere as well, greed beyond measure, but also lots of nonsense talked on all sides of this particular uh, debate. You hear of companies, or so many companies, who insist that their pay must be in the upper quartile of executive uh, remuneration. Everybody must be in the upper quartile, or their self-esteem will, will not be able to bear it. Um, you hear of schemes where it's all based on shareholder value and share price in the good times, but as soon as the bad times arrive, different matrices are, 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 are discovered in order to uh, compensate. And I think it's absolutely right to say that bonuses have become far too big a part of the overall uh, pay package in, in this country. I saw a graph the other day which showed 10 years ago, on average, it was roughly 10% or 20% of base pay. It's now up to roughly 100% equivalent to base pay. So it's half and half bonus and base pay. Now, that, to my mind, and to most of the people, experts I talk to in our industry, is far too high. So there's got to be a, a change there. Um, but the problem with all this is that, particularly in the moment, when, every, when the emotions are running so high, you create a sort of atmosphere of fury and hysteria where it becomes almost impossible to hold any view apart from the fact we must get these bastards and bonuses must be driven out of the system. So it was with some trepidation, and I crossed my fingers and held my breath, that I 
wrote a short letter to one of the papers saying, just be careful here, you can turn bonus into such a dirty word that you do some serious damage uh, to a lot of organisations and to a lot of ways of doing things. Uh, be careful, in other words, what you wish for. Um, because there are some very strong arguments, very powerful arguments in favour of, let's call it, variable pay. Um, and they need to be thought about and rediscovered and, de and debated properly. For one, it gives you variable costs. It's actually very, very useful to see your costs go up in good times and your costs come down in tough times uh, on the pay bill. Otherwise, you're locking in, and it will be typically very high costs uh, to, your, to your income and expenditure. And believe me, you know, if in the absence of bonuses, as was hinted, people will go for high base pay, and that will be the net, net if effect. And what's happening in the banks is they're increasingly now looking at, at that as the, as the alternative. Um, secondly, it does influence behaviour, uh, perhaps not totally. You know, my, my self-esteem requires me to believe that I would do lots of good things whether or not I was eligible for bonus. But at the margins, and where, where I have discretion, uh, bonuses can influence behaviour. The critics of bonuses say they can influence behaviour in a very bad way. Logic, therefore, says they can possibly influence behaviour in a very positive way as well. They communicate what is important to an organisation. Um, I heard an example the other day of a water company which pays bonuses according to its results on water quality and service to the customer. That is, seems to me to be a very good system of bonuses which communicates very effectively to everybody in that company what is important uh, to it. Um, it increases accountability and engagement. The sense that you're sharing in an enterprise is very important, it, it seems to me. I don't think you have to believe, and there's mixed evidence about this, you don't have to believe that it's, it is a prime motivatory factor. You know, this is the Digby Jones point. I never took a bonus. I never required a bonus, uh, a bonus in my working life. I was able to get out of bed every morning to go to work without the incentive of a bonus. That's fine. I don't think you have to. And there's, you know, the academic evidence is mixed on whether it drives motivation or not. There are all sorts of other very positive reasons. And I've always believed that it's very important that employees are able to share in the success of their enterprise and indeed to take some of the hit uh, when it's not doing well. Uh, that always, I was brought up to believe, it was a very progressive idea that sharing in, in things, it shouldn't just be the shareholders who benefit or who, or, or who take the pain uh, equivalently. Employees have a report and role. Now, it's often done badly, of course it is. Um, all sorts of examples. We can all produce a bonus schemes that are wrong headed, uh, that, that influence behaviour in a very bad way, or which simply try to base things on measures which can't be influenced. So the poor employee or the executive is left there thinking, like, why have I got this scheme? Because it's nothing to do with what I actually do. And, and they can also be uh, very demotivating. I was um, on one of these radio programmes, phone in radio programmes the other day, which was all about targets and bonuses and the culture around all that. And, of course, it attracts a lot of phone calls. Perfectly uh, a positive lady rang in and said, look, I work in a call centre. Targets, bonuses lead to a lot of bullying. What do you mean by that? Every month, my supervisor stands over us all and says, look, oh, workers in call centre, if you don't achieve your targets, I won't receive my bonus. <laughs> this is not a very good approach to management. And, uh, uh, but the point is... Bonuses and remuneration are not a substitute 
for good management and good leadership. Now, two final points. Um, what, one thing that we do if we run this campaign against variable pay, against bonuses in the private sector, is we let the public sector off the hook. Because that seems to be to, is one area where it's not done well and there is great potential for improving performance if we get it right. The second is, don't let the politicians and government anywhere near this. There's no scheme so bad that it can't be made worse through, through, through legislation. Or the, and, and I think we've seen this already in the, in the relationship, as somebody was saying, between UKFI and, and the banks. So there is a danger that we lose all the advantages. There is an even bigger danger that we don't... Somebody, you know, uh, Ram said in, in America, don't waste a good crisis. There is a real danger that we don't take this opportunity to have a serious, considered debate which enables us to talk to each other properly and build some sort of shared understanding of how, of how this should work in the future, because it sure hasn't worked in the past. Um, thank you. Our final speaker is Martin van der Weyer, who is editor of Spectator Business. Martin. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start with a bit of personal history confessional, uh, and then try and draw some general principles out of this. Um, I was a banker before I was a journalist. I'm a, a lot older than I look, um, a lot <laughs> thinner than I look, too. Um, and um, if I, if I um, think back 30 years, I was a, a sort of idle, unmotivated junior assistant manager in the banking division of Schroeder's in Cheapside. Uh, I came to work at 9.30. I spent a lot of the day doing the Times crossword. My friends and I, who were all Oxbridge Arts graduates, rather sneered at anyone who looked too keen. Um, and we were prime examples of, I think, Philip Orgo's book, The Death of Gentlemanly Capitalism. We were the last generation of the gentlemanly capitalist intake into the city. Um, if you wanted to make money in those days, you basically got on a plane and blagged yourself a job on Wall Street, or perhaps you went to Hong Kong, but in the city um, you behaved, as I've described. Twenty years ago, late 80s, beginning of the 90s, it had all changed. The um, Big Bang changed, the arrival of the Wall Street houses in a big way in London and so on. Global competition in investment banking meant we were all very, very keen indeed on this new bonus culture which had begun to affect our lives. Um, I've um, Actually, I've never put this in print because I'm now so ashamed of it, but I did once collect a million-dollar bonus. They were only Hong Kong dollars, of which there were 18 to the pound, <laughs> but at the time, it was a life-changing thing. I think it paid off my first mortgage on a grotty small flat in London, and it, you know, I had dollar signs in my eyes, and... What I observed, I, when I came back to London, I was ch briefly chief operating officer of a division of uh, what was then Barclays de Zoot Wed. So I was involved in the bonus award process for a couple of years. So I've seen it from that angle too. What I observed was a complete change in behavior pattern amongst even colleagues who'd been with me doing the Times crossword in 1979 became driven, greedy, aggressive, uh, quite different personalities often. The collegiate trust, team spirit, pride of working for the firm all became subservient to the shorter term question of how much you were going to 
be paid or whether you could be paid more by moving elsewhere. So my whole view of this topic is colored by that. And having been a journalist since the early 90s, I've observed it go on and those effects multiply and multiply. Um, but going back to what the other panelists have said, I think we should hang on to the idea that bonus is not in itself a dirty word, that a bonus can be an entirely good thing so long as it's proportionate, that it can be a good thing both as a profit sharing across an entire business. The example of John Lewis just recently, everyone in John Lewis got, I think, 13% of their salary this year. Every year since 1969, they've had somewhere between 8 and 24% of salary across the firm. Uh, everybody admires that uh, collective cooperative business model. It's very unusual, but it works. You could take big corporate examples outside the city. The example of Vodafone comes to mind. Um, the late Sir Ernest Harrison, he just died, who founded Vodafone. I don't think his shareholders would have been begrudged him very, very large bonuses. I don't think he paid himself large bonuses for all the shareholder value he created. On the other hand, when Vodafone bought Mannersman in Germany, and I think I'm right in saying Sir Chris Gent was given £10 million bonus just for doing that deal. That was an entirely controversial short-term bonus payment which raised a lot of alarm signals. So long-term creation of value deserves bonuses, but bonuses have to be proportionate. I don't think there are any jobs. Peter Viggers, I think, said there are some jobs which shouldn't get bonuses at all. I don't think in, across the entire private sector, and even including journalists, there's nothing wrong with bonuses. But what has happened in the financial sector is that levels of remuneration got so high that they completely warped the risk judgment and the moral judgment of many people in the financial sector. Something crept in. The, the clever bankers talked the shareholders and the clients into believing that for every profitable unit, for every profit, profitable deal, a slice, maybe 20% of the profit of the deal, however you measured the profit, was due to the clever people who did the deal. And something like that crept in right across the system. It's, what, it's how hedge funds worked. It's why my former boss, Conrad Black, is in jail for creaming off 20% out of the, the Telegraph group, in effect. Um, and actually, it turned out to be wrong in two ways. It had warped the <coughs> risk and reward system, so there was far too much reward going to the, the practitioners who were merely employees of the business and not enough when there were rewards to the shareholders. The clients were being basically stuffed in the interests of paying more on this, you know, 20%, whatever it is, to us system. The whole judgment got warped. So I'm not really interested in whether it should be regulated, whether it must be longer term rather than shorter term bonus systems, anything like that. I think the quantum of remuneration in the financial sector by a process of talking it up, talking it up, saying the market sets the terms, the quantum got so high that it completely warped people's um, mindset and their behavior and that that is the one really big difference between this crisis and past crises. And when the history books are written, a great deal of the blame for this unbelievably huge and dangerous financial crisis will fall on that, that the bankers somehow managed to pay themselves and persuade other people to pay them so much that they lost their grip on reality. Martin, thank you. 
Um, right, now we're going to open it um, to the floor, but I wonder, <clears throat> before we do that, if I can kick it off. I mean, Alan, your, your feeling is that it would be a bad idea to let government anywhere near um, sorting out bonuses. Now, Peter, would you agree with that? Do you think that legislation <coughs> about bonuses and trying to cap them in some way, regulate the whole thing, is the wrong way, is the wrong way forward? Yes, I, I do not have any confidence that government uh, is capable of producing anything sufficiently sophisticated to, um, to, to be effective. Um, we had John Moulton uh, in front of the Treasury Select Committee the other day, and we asked him whether he thought that regulators were ever going to be completely on top of practitioners, and he said, well, certainly not. I mean, there are many more um, criminals with degrees than there are policemen. There are many more bright practitioners than there are um, people capable of regulating in government. So, no, I would not regulate here at all. I'm going to open it to the floor. If we have two microphones, one here and one at the back... Hi, Anthony Hilton. Um, can I make two, three points and then I'll ask you to comment on it? Uh, the first is, uh, just as a bit of information, Paul Volcker in London at a conference before Christmas said that he thought that the financial crisis was born of um, excessive pay and bonuses combining with the complexity of derivatives. So that's an authoritative contribution to the fact that bonuses were part of the problem. I think the most interesting, uh, or one of the most interesting comments I think that Alan made was the link between bonuses and management. And I would argue that the city has used bonuses as a substitute for management. And that it is thought that uh, they want certain objectives, just pile money on them and send people off after them. And that were there not bonuses, decent salaries but not bonuses, then the city would have to learn to manage its organizations better and create um, proper uh, targets, if you like, uh, well, just manage them better. And that would be in the interests of the shareholders. And this is my real point, which is that I think, um, and Martin made the point very well, that bonuses chasing short-term goals destroys long-term value. And all well, we've seen the banks are blown up, but by and large, the, cl the clients get stuffed, the customer gets stuffed. And th this um, was in the book on Salomons that Ma Martin Lewis, uh, Michael Lewis wrote well, back in the late 80s, so it's not new. Um, and so the intriguing thing is, why did the shareholders allow it? And my question is, I, or what I'd suggest is that the shareholders allow it because the shareholders are not actually the owners that our institutional shareholders have a dysfunctionality in that they are agents too, and therefore it, and they are, if you like, part of the system too, and that they are too aligned with the city and the bonus culture to rebel against it. And that um, if we are to address this problem, we have somehow to make our institutional shareholders work as owners rather than as agents with their own business risks and their own uh, perverse incentives. So that's a bit I'd like you to comment on. Tim, go on. I, I mean, I think, I think Anthony's right. This is absolutely central. Um, but I don't think there's a very easy answer. So you, you ask yourself, how, how can we get shareholders to really pay attention to the details of bonuses? Uh, who, who is going to do that? So a small shareholder is not going to do that. Because a small shareholder owns 
you know, diversified shareholding, a very small investment in any one institution, and has no real incentive to, to pay attention to the details of, sh of CEO pay or, or the traders' pay or whoever's pay, especially when that pay is disguised through, well, as we had with Apple, we had Steve Jobs being paid with backdated options at a board meeting that Apple then admitted actually there was no board meeting. Um, we have reloadable options, something I mentioned in the logic of life, reloadable options. Who, know, who cares about the technical details? They're supposed to be baffling. The basic idea is it gives you an incentive to make the share, share price move up and down a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, what you, that's what you get paid for in a reloadable option. Um, we have pensions uh, where everyone sort of wakes up and says, hang on a moment, this pension's huge. Oh, well, sorry, it's all, it's all been signed, it's all been done and dusted. Uh, it, wasn't being, it wasn't being paid at the time, but, but the obligation was being accrued. Um, you've got all these ways that are hard to monitor. So small shareholders can't do it. Institutional shareholders in principle could do it. They really could do it. And I, I think Anthony's on to the, to the right thing. Maybe these are the people we can persuade to take their responsibilities more seriously. Um, but as you say, there's an agency problem within an agency problem. Family shareholders, large family shareholders, as I mentioned, do do this. So it can be done. And I think we've all agreed that for many, many reasons, government is not really going to be able to do this. I think on institutional shareholders, there is a structural issue there as well, in that institutional shareholders are generally uh, assessed in terms of their relative performance, which encourages uh, a herd-like mentality and makes it harder for somebody to say, hang on, what about what you're doing here? Um, so I think maybe that, that, that there, is, there is a structural issue to, to look at that could, in terms of how shareholders are rewarded, which would help as well. Okay. You, Tim Johns at Unilever. I think... Both the point about institutional shareholders and uh, the bonus culture almost seeing the issue from the wrong end of the telescope. Um, I think it's um, performance and targets is the issue rather than bonuses. Bonuses are the end of the performance and targets. Uh, Simon Corking read an excellent piece at the weekend in the Observer about targets can kill, um, focusing on um, Staffordshire uh, Health Authority. And I wonder whether focusing on uh, CEO performance and bonuses at the very top masks the point about management, which is, which is the point um, I think um, most people are focusing on. Businesses aren't very well managed, and performance targets are a consequence of that. This is, I think, a key problem. Uh, it is very hard in some businesses to identify the appropriate targets. In other businesses, it's perfectly easy. Um, I mean, I'm an, I'm an author. I get paid for the number of books that sell. That is a reasonably... That's a reasonably effective target. There are some incentive problems, but it's, it's basically fine. But so often we find that we, um, we can't measure what really counts. And my favorite example is, is uh, Sergei Bubka. This is something I talk about in the book, where he was paid, he was a pole vaulter. Uh, he was paid every time he broke the world record. He's the greatest pole vaulter the world's ever seen and could break the world record whenever he wanted. Um, because of the nature of pole vaulting, they don't measure how high you jump they just measure how high the bar is when you jump over it. So you have absolute control. And he broke, he broke the world record, I think, on about 25 different occasions, each time by one centimeter. Now, <clears throat> so you've, you've, got to, you've got to be very, very careful about how you, how you set targets. I think it can be done more intelligently. I think a lot of this is just, is just either common sense or experience. Um, but in some cases, you cannot set appropriate targets. They will be manipulated, and if that's the case, you shouldn't be paying bonuses and you shouldn't be setting targets. I mean, it's interesting, Tim, isn't it, that in, in a week where 
NHS targets have been, have, you know, had a, a, an awful time, and Simon's piece was right. There are examples. One can think of the childhood immunisation targets that were given to GPs, for example, where they, they, they were told, right, but if you can get kind of 95% plus of the kids on your list immunised, then you will get this payment for that, and it worked. Then it, that, was all, that was all screwed up by the MMR scare afterwards. But, you know, it, it, and the public sector has been touched on here by Alan, and, it, and, and the bonus culture has gone into the public sector, and in, in, in many ways, um, very unlike that, that GP example, where they've, you know, the bonuses just get paid regardless at the end of the year, and the the targets seem quite often to be kind of meaningless. Anyway, um, the gentleman over here and then, and then after Virginia afterwards. Good morning. Uh, my name is John Purcell. I'm sort of one of the villains of the piece in the sense that I run a headhunting firm. And on the back of that, um, I've been asked over the last uh, few months to appear on the BBC quite a lot. And sometimes that takes the form of a phone-in on Radio 5 Live, which I think a couple of people have experience of. And what I've observed from that is that whilst we're all sitting here chatting very sensibly and soberly and looking at things uh, in a, in a grown-up way, um, I have to say, my experience, uh, and there's no other phrase for it, I got the shit kicked out of me several times by having this sort of, or attempting to have this sort of sensible discussion. And I'm wondering how the gap can be closed between uh, the sort of sensible conversation we're having here and, and the vitriolic anger as evidenced by the attack on uh, Fred's place uh, the other day. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point. I, Evan Davis of the BBC said to me the other day, he used a phrase which was unfamiliar to me, he said I was a victim of cognitive capture, uh, which he said meant that I, because I had been in this world so long and I'd actually worked in the city and so on, nothing I could ever write about it would ever be free of uh, all the sort of you know, received stuff packed away. And so the whole financial community is at the moment suffering from that problem. It, it is having great difficulty shaking off uh, an era of thinking that you, know, you could change your life with a single year's bonus. You could aspire to fly around in private jets. Um, <laughs> I met a not frankly very bright young man who used to work for me uh, in BZW and he'd become chief executive of a very large bank and he told me he had six houses in Kensington. Well, you know, it's just grotesque. And the whole financial community has to think now, actually, that was grotesque. It's ended in complete disaster. It's over. We have to scale back. We have to scale down. doesn't mean we have to sit in front of committees apologising over and over again. We don't all have to sit here and apologise to you this morning. Perhaps I do, but the others don't. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But it, it has to be shaken off. My friend, Bob, my new best friend Bob Diamond of Barclays Capital will find he can live quite comfortably on quarter of a million pounds this year, even though it's 1% of what he earned uh, in his better years. You know, just scale down. It's over. That's the thing. Virginia? Um, well, for the last 10 years, having done other things, I've been a headhunter. So I chair the board practice at Odgers. And we are involved in a lot of different sorts of businesses and organisations. My essential view on this is that everybody wants recognition and reward. And for some people, being a fellow of the Royal Society is the thing they most want in the whole of their lives. For some people, a CBE or a knighthood is what they want. They want people to think they're a good guy. For a lot of academics, it's getting their paper published. 
And the dilemma for the guys in the city is, you know, what do they really want? And some of them are lads and lasses who are sort of playing squash with money. I mean, that's what turns them on, and that's what motivates them. This is quite complex. We've talked about three different sorts of organisations. You mentioned the public sector, and I'm delighted you mentioned the very simple idea of giving people a bonus for immunising the uh, uh, children. The doctors were furious, and they said, you know, do you think we're just commercial people? We're only worried about our wallet, but, you know, <coughs> it worked. Um, the tragedy about the public sector is the public sector always tries to ape what they think the commercial world does. So they think targets are the way. And you talk to someone in the health service, they had something like 96 targets at one stage. Talk to a guy at BAE, how many targets have you got? Three. So the point about commercial targets that work, and Unilever is the next sort of organisation is going to talk about, is you know, these are specific targets everybody understands, and they're owned bottom-up. They weren't invented at a sort of um, party political event. And um, There's nothing partisan about what I'm saying. I suspect all political parties have this idea of, let's make it simple, and let's do what we want from the top, you know, people prevention policies, all this sort of nonsense. So we've got to do more work to educate the public sector, in my sense. I think we should all learn from the, good, the blue chip companies who sort of get the point that bonuses are about management. So we're left back where we were with these really tricky financial bonuses. Now, I find it hard to understand why a bonus needs to be more than double the basic salary. Because essentially, your salary is what you're paid for. Is what, is, why is the bonus more than twice that? That's because you're basically working on commission. So these are almost like independent practitioners who are working on commission. And that's my sort of general view. Oh, I had one last comment. It's Peter Vigors. Um, I don't know whether, how many people know this, but when the House of Commons starts, they start with prayers. Now, nobody, I bet, defy any of you to tell me what the prayer is, and I'm going to tell you. And I think this fits very well in many boardrooms. The prayer that members of parliament say is you pray that you shall govern wisely and avoid love of power and desire to please. I think that um, this is a very good message for corporate Britain that we should avoid love of power and desire to please. Um, Thank you. Um, I'm not at all uh, convinced that this era really is over. I mean, there's a temporary pickup, but I think it seems to me the reality check hasn't really got there. It's sort of, how are we going to get through this bumpy patch before we get back on the bike again? Or the Ferrari, as the case may be. Um, I think that, um, you know, you say you've got a great kicking. I think the public rage, though, is, is, is real and genuine. And it's about very real underlying things. It's about the fact the latest ONS figures show that over the last sort of three to five years, the real incomes of 80% of the people have hardly risen, of 50% of the people not at all, and a third of the, of the people fallen back. And compare that with the Institute of Directors figures for, for, for top CEOs uh, and, and, and boardrooms, showing that whereas 20 years ago they were paying themselves uh, 17 times the average in their, within their workforce, they are now, were then, paying themselves 75 times. And so when people were being given figures about uh, terrific growth rates, unprecedented 10-year, golden age, 10 years of growth, 
they weren't feeling it, and they didn't know why. The statistics weren't lying, but the statistics were meaningless. They were a meaningless empty average that didn't tell people how they felt. So there was this increasing scratchiness about what, they, what, the, what the government was saying, or what the economists, everybody was saying, terrific, terrific, you know, 3% growth, isn't it wonderful? And they didn't feel it themselves, and they didn't know why. So this um, dysfunction of growing inequality and of celebration of what was happening really only to very few people, even of the 20% 20 pe 20 of people who were doing well, basically that was in the top 10%, and basically within the top 1%. So that um, I think there's been a growing underlying, uh, without much comprehension, sense of this going on. And it is inequality itself that is coming back and biting back. But frankly, I, I'm not detecting as yet a real change of spirit at the top of any understanding of this, the sort of crossness off the record. People say, well, this is all absurd. It's not about bonus. It's not about what we earn. Look at Beckham and so on. But there is one sympathy. You've been, I'd like to ask you as a question, you've been very dismissive of government's ability to do anything about it. Oh, all regulations will be gamed. Well, they will be to some extent, but they'll still basically work. Um, there is one very simple thing, which is a very high rate of income tax for, very, for excessive earnings. We've had it before. We can do it again. basically works. People gave it a bit. But um, that's the simplest mechanism, and it works pretty damn well. And we have the lowest top rate of tax of anybody but Luxembourg in the EU, though people think it's a high t rate of tax. And that's something governments do rather well. Anyone want to take that? I don't agree with the, the last point. Uh, when the highest rate of tax was reduced, the tax take actually increased. And um, people are very clever at finding ways around uh, high rates of taxation. What I, <clears throat> what I think we lack is a moral basis for a moral basis based on fairness. I mentioned the Marxian creed, which is actually philosophically more attractive than the capitalist creed. And what, we've lack, what we lack is fairness, and I too am very worried about the growing uh, gap between the very rich and the very poor, and the social problems that, that, will, that will follow from that. And what we need to do is to underpin capitalism with a sense of fairness, that people deserve to be treated fairly. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moral creed that we lack, I think, that we need to work on, rather than the taxation system plug to our book, um, Unjust Rewards, second edition, just out, in that we have an, an interview with the top tax man who said that when the rate of income tax was reduced and down to 40% the top rate, they in, the, they in uh, what's now HMRC assumed that they'd be out of a job, that basically people would stop bothering to cheat, uh, and that would be the end of the story. To his total horror and astonishment, he found the opposite happened. The culture changed, where tax became something to avoid. The official view was tax is a burden, cutting it is good, and therefore avoiding it is good, and avoidance shot up as tax came down. Uh, you know, it's accelerated ever since, and I think that's an interesting insight about how much culture and the messages sent from government determine behaviour in ways beyond simple uh, just uh, incentives in a technical sense. Just to make a point, when, when some of this fury was at its height, the Prime Minister wrote a piece in the Times, I think, saying precisely this, that there needs to be some agreed principles uh, on which uh, 
bonuses and other pay issues should be based. And I think he's absolutely right. The problem is they're not agreed and they're not widely shared and articulated. And it seems to me to the point over there about how do you get bridge the gap between the public and, and, and this sort of debate is you know, the, the, the groups involved really now have to step up to this plate and, do, and show some leadership. The employer community has to do that. I think the investor community has to do that. They do a certain amount already, but they need to be more out there. And then I think that, you know, and there is an expert community, some of it in management consultancies, but elsewhere, that has an important contribution to make. Those, it seems to me, are the, the groups that need to do the work on this and actually come together so that they can you know, explain how is this going to work, what are the principles on which it is based, and, and how should you test future awards and future schemes? What's the bent, you know, what's the, what are the principles of which, against which they must be tested? And that increases the transparency, increases the public scrutiny, um, because although she put it wrongly, but the court of public opinion is vitally important in this and needs to be won round. Tracy. I was to say, I think there is one other group which we haven't really talked about, which is, uh, which is non-exec directors who, um, along with institutional investors, <coughs> have completely let the side down in the run-up to this crisis. Um, and I think there is um, a potential for corporate governance, you know, rather than having very blunt bonus capping laws or tax rises, uh, there is scope for having uh, much stronger corporate governance laws which require non-exec directors to scrutinise uh, pay much more pay and bonuses much more closely, and which also take away, get rid of the sort of back scratching elements, which means that you know you're on the audit committee and somebody your mate is setting your non-exec fees, etc., etc. So I think there is some scope for that. Can I follow that point? The Treasury Select Committee has had banker after banker after banker in front of us, and they've all said the same thing: non-executive directors need more training, they need to be properly skilled, they need to spend more time on the job. I think. It's absolutely wrong. My personal view is that the first qualification for a non-executive director is that you don't want the job. You can walk away from it any time, don't care at all. And you need to be, you know, ask the dumb questions. I don't, if you don't understand it, don't do it. So non-executive directors should be asking the dumb questions from a background of wide information. Thank you. Uh, ben Wolf here for New Deal of the Mind, I guess, today. Um, two very quick stories on how bonus culture killed the record business. Uh, in 2000, there was this little thing called Napster that before it made the papers, I wrote a white paper for all the chairman of the music business on how to respond uh, to the threat of this thing called the internet and peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. Now, everyone agreed it was a very simple solution and it would have increased the business at a stroke sixfold. However, the chairman of the biggest record company at the time, who's a guy who was in his late 50s, he said, Ben, look, I've got snow on the roof. This is my last gig. I've got a year and a half to go. You're going to ruin my bonus if we do this because you're asking me, instead of captaining England at football, to start playing basketball, and I don't like basketball. So as a result, him and the other people who had vested interests and personal interests uh, weren't interested enough in the business that they were chairing because they were all on short-term bonus packages. Worse was what happened with Columbia Records, I mean, a record company in America, uh, where the bonus structure was all about profit. And um, in the music business, you have this thing called an A&R budget, which is what you use to sign artists, artists and repertoire. 
and it's many, many, many millions. And um, a president there decided that because the way his bonus was worked out, that the best way to make the biggest bonus was not to spend the A&R budget. So for two years, they didn't actually sign anyone. Um, he went, and the record business pretty much went with it. I think that, um, not even Guy Hands can save it now either, can it? Um, Peter. Peter York from The Independent. One thing about NEDS, it isn't about training or whether they've got bankers' qualifications. The thing about NEDS is that they're extraordinarily homogeneous. And headhunters feel that they can leaven the lump by making them browner or more female. That isn't what it's about. They are fantastically socially homogeneous, likely to come from accountancy, law, or other bits of finance, and to see the world in remarkably similar ways. And because of that, they can also be bullied because of not being up school. There's a funny little film, rather rather stodgy little film, produced by PwC, which shows precisely this process going on. You're delaying the process, you know, by making these public-spirited objections. You're delaying the process. You're undermining other people's bonuses. People don't say it, it explicitly, but that's what it's about. Another little uh, coda to what Polly said. Um, about 10 years ago, I did some research about people's perceptions of money and who had it. And what this showed was that broadly, amongst the population at large, people thought that the people who had money were toffs and celebrities. I'm over-egging, but it's true. People did not realize that there was a large and consistent class or set of subclasses, the ones defined in unjust rewards, who, who actually had the order of, of reward that they had, on quite how large and secu secure, in effect, those classes were. People are beginning to realize it now, because it's been, been in no newspaper or television station interest to talk about that, the order of difference, the fact that there are secure, large groups of people who enjoy extraordinary rewards, and that they're not exceptional. You know, they're not David Beckham's. Um, now, people are beginning to recognize it. In Polly's book, um, she did a clever thing. She did group discussions with the very well-rewarded, and the very well-rewarded turned out not to know anything about the rest of humanity. They assumed that actually the national average wage was really 100,000. I mean, that isn't what she said, but there, is, there exists a world in, in which only the people who mop your floors are not assumed to earn 100,000 or over. And they wildly under, you know, misread the threshold for the top 10% of earners. They thought it was about 130,000. They wildly misread what the, were the poverty rates. That mutual misunderstanding has led to a very, very violent build-up of antagonism and loss of legitimacy. And you ca it's very difficult to discuss it rationally. Sure. I think Virginia wanted to come back on, I assume, on the NEDs. Sorry, very specific point, because it's a very practical point. Um, when a board chooses um, their audit partner, the chairman of the audit committee has an independent relationship 
with the auditor, sees the auditors without any of the executives there. The relationship with the remuneration advisors is quite different. Nearly always they're chosen by the HR director in cahoots with the chief executive and whether, I'm not saying where it's a minority of cases that the non-execs see the remuneration people on their own. And I really think the most important thing, it's very hard, one of the toughest jobs is to be the REMCO chair. In the diversity point, which you're so right about, you know, people often like a former permanent secretary or somebody with a different background, but you can bet your life they don't want them as the REMCO chair because they don't know where the noughts ought to be. Put them on the audit, put them somewhere else, but not on the REMCO. But the real point is, how can we ensure that uh, remuneration committees choose their own independent advisors and that the advisor hasn't already been coached and rehearsed by the HR director who is really in the authority line of the chief executive in a much more powerful way than the finance director is. They still are under the power of the chief executive but it's not such a sort of dominant relationship. Peter, can I actually ask you a question? I mean, the, now, now that, now that the, 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 gen, the, the world has had this revelation about the extent of the rewards available in financial services generally, which apparently was unknown to most of them before, I mean, how do you see you know, their industry and life for them panning out over the next you know, two, five, ten years? Because we're already hearing that you know, whereas the cream of the crop of graduates before wanted to go into investment banking, now they're running a mile from it. I mean, how, how do you think that... This, this wave of anger is going to affect how, how they behave in their industry generally? It's a destruction of legitimacy. It's also a destruction of status. For a very long time, for, and for varying reasons, the word banker has been a very high-status one. It used to be a high-status Sloan word, the, the, the world that Martin's described, you know, um, not doing very much, but socially very okay. Then it became um, a byword for global, th um, uh, global capitalism and the city, and it called, was called investment banker, and it was a very, very different thing. And everyone who could possibly aspire to be called a banker did. Now, if you were the deputy under-manager in Barclays in Guildford, you would say you were a meter maid. <laughs> now... That won't last forever. People are incredibly capable of bouncing back. And because of the... I was hearing Lord Curry talk about this yesterday. The reversion from big picture macroeconomics to all sorts of clever microeconomics. The collective memory got lost about, you know, nobody, but nobody talked about 1929. Now... Um, they think constantly about 1929, and that book sells out. But, you know, t ten years from now, there'll be a new formula. In, in the front row, the lady here. Uh, Philippa Foster-Back from the Institute of Business Ethics. I'd just like to pick up on something Virginia was just saying, which I entirely agree with that point in terms of um, the, the Remcos having more independence. I'd also like to suggest something for the Remcos in the fact that a lot of the bigger bonuses were paid to traders on the desks. Uh, those bonuses tended to be set by the management teams and they were also doing the review of those whether goals and targets had been set whether or not they actually understood everything is another matter. But um, I, Remco's have always focused on the executive team 
and possibly the top 100 people. They have very rarely, in my experience of studying this, have actually focused at all on the the star traders. And, and I think that uh, the, where perhaps an individual can own, uh, earn more than 50, 100, 75, whatever percentage of their salary, those um, s schemes, those bonuses, ought to have independent scrutiny, and they ought to come into the REMCOs as well. And I'm not aware of any banks who've actually been doing that. Interestingly, I'm, I met a non-exec director of a, of a bank, of one of the big banks recently, who was saying, well, it's all been terribly difficult, and actually at one point they did bring to the board a proposal to hire a team of derivative specialists uh, on multi-million dollar bonus packages, and really what were we supposed to say? So I, I'm just not sure that even if you take it to the board, unless, as you, say, as you were saying, unless the non-execs are you know, prepared to say, well, why are we going to pay these people this money? You know, what risks are they going to take? I mean, I think there's still, even if it goes to the board, there still needs to be... A, not that, that attitude of waving it through because you're told that it, it's, it's vital for the business to get these crucial people mm. has got to disappear. I mean, I think you answered that in your speech, didn't you? Because the argument has always been, if we don't hire them, somebody yeah. else will, and they will make unbelievable amounts of money from them. Yes, and it would be nice to think that that's no longer the case, but I'm not... But, I mean, people in the city are telling me that that still is happening. So, I mean, for example, UBS, which has um, instituted this, this stricter clawback bonus structure... Uh, other banks are trying to pick off the best people from UBS and are to some degree succeeding. So I think that, um, you know, that Polly's right, that culture doesn't disappear overnight. Um, gentleman in the front row here. I think someone mentioned John Lewis earlier and their bonuses. Uh, there's a lot of difference between John Lewis and banks. Uh, I can measure the risk of John Lewis uh, quite accurately. I can't measure the risk of banks so accurately, but it's very important to measure the risks of uh, banks. Um, it was Sir Fred Goodwin who got me interested in uh, remuneration, made me look at the RBS remuneration report. And uh, it's amazing how easy it is for Sir Fred to get his bonus. <clears throat> for example, he gets a basic salary of 1.25 million. Now, all he has to do to get 25% uh, of that is to beat a weighted average of his competitors, just beat them. He can do that if he has no skill at all with 50% probability, i.e. 25% of his bonus right, has a 50% probability of being due to luck. <laughs> Not only that, he only has to beat his competitors by 3% in order to get 125% of his basic salary. The probability of him getting this purely due to luck, no skill whatsoever, is 30%. <clears throat> this remuneration committee, right, is ill-informed, is not up to the job whatsoever. How can we get round that uh, possibility? People will recognise that, look at this remuneration committee, that all this is due to the fact is they measure his return over a very short period of three years. And whenever you measure anything over three years with data, you do not measure it very accurately. And that's why a large part of it can be due to luck. What's the answer to this? Well, it is, of course, corporate governments, governance. But, you know, in a capitalist system, all we can do is nudge the world a little. <clears throat> and my suggestion for nudging it is this. We have a thing called the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which I think most people would say does a pretty good job <clears throat> on a fairly technical level, basically. Yeah? What we need is a completely independent body 
independent of the Bank of England, independent of the Treasury, independent of the Financial Services Authority, which Lord Turner has said was subject to regulatory capture over the last five to ten years or so, uh, and therefore is, is, is part due to the crisis. Well, all the questions you raise today require some technical expertise. It's important that technical expertise is independent. So what we need is not NICE, but we need NIFE, the National Institute for Financial Excellence. And I think that would nudge the world into a slightly better place. I suspect one of the reasons why that three-year thing existed, because that's roughly the, l the life expectancy of a FTSE 250 CEO in the first place, isn't it? I mean, they all get... No, no, I know, but I mean, I'm sure that that's one of their arguments. It's one of their arguments in the back of their mind when, when that kind of short-term type thing... Yeah, well, it's also... It's stupid, but it's, I mean, it's also a fact of life that that's the average time they lasted. Anyway, look, Ma I think Martin wanted to bring... Make a point then. Well, yeah, let me try and draw several things together. Um, it's a very good new book just come out by Bill Cohan about Bear Stearns. And one of the things it says is Bear Stearns had a sign hung up over their trading floor which said, let's make nothing but money. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> if you're in the business of making nothing but money, the, 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 the complexity, the extent to which you can design and redesign financial products and so on, has turned out to be more or less infinite, so extraordinarily difficult to track, difficult to analyze the risks, and so the element of luck that you describe is a huge element of the, these fortunes made in the financial world in recent times, the now several hundred billion dollars creamed off um, by the executive layer of the financial world over the past decade. There was a huge element of luck. It turned out probability didn't matter at all. It was all about uncertainty in the end, and no, you know, none of their formulas worked. So luck was an element, but actually analyzing that, having an institute that would say, well, you can trade that product, but not this no, one. This one's not safe to, to trade. No, that that's, uh, it's not the point. No, no. Uh, I assume it was the point. measure risk in, long, uh, in, lo <laughs> in lots of ways, right? No, it's simply to say, if you measure something this way, it'll be stupid. If you measure it this way, it might be slightly less stupid. And to inform the non-executive directors of, in this case, the Royal Bank of Scotland, that they did something that was incredibly stupid. It's even worse, and the, the reason it's even worse is because uh, Fred Goodwin can beat his competitors uh, with much greater than 50% probability. What he does, he takes $100 million, he goes down to Las Vegas, and then he, he bets that uh, he bets on all the numbers except one. And we, he has a one in, 36, 1 in 36 chance of losing the $100 million, but a 35 in 36 chance that he gets an extra $100 million. That, that will nudge, uh, nudge up his performance. Or maybe, maybe it's a billion, maybe it's two billion. That will nudge up his performance and he'll beat his peers. Of course, once he starts doing that, his peers will do the same thing. The system gets riskier and riskier and riskier and riskier, and then we get a credit crunch. Now, I think economists pointed this out beforehand. Raghu Rajan, the chief economist of the IMF at the time, pointed this out in 2005. Peyton Young described how a hedge fund could, with a little bit of leverage and the right kind of bets, could mimic the performance of a brilliant hedge fund with 99% probability, despite the fact that this hedge fund had no skill whatsoever. 1% chance, the whole thing blows up. So, you know, that's, you know, rough, you know 1929, 2008, you know, roughly every 80 years or so. Um, so, so I think I agree, and I think the situation is even worse than, than, than you portrayed. So economists identified this. The great failing of the economists is I don't think we pointed out quite how serious 
it could be. I don't think we, we saw the problem, we knew there was a problem, we didn't realize it was going to shatter the world's financial system. And I think the great failing of the non-economists, if I can be so bold, is that they said, yeah, 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 that's all very technical. All we care about is there are fat cats out there and we don't like it. And I think there was, there was not much interest in the more subtle arguments about how it was that the cats were getting fat. And I think that's, so there was a failure on both sides. Well, Tim, where were you when we needed you? Eh? Tracy? I, I don't really think it was about luck at all, actually. I think that RBS could make 100% sure that it, that it was in, in that sort of top 50% because its targets at the time were all about asset growth uh, and it was pursuing... Uh, returns and basically it didn't have the controls in place to, to, to measure to measure risk-adjusted returns in the in the correct way. So I, I, I agree with Tim. It's it's worse than that. Back at the side there. Uh, hi Matthew. Sorry to sort of come back to reality again. Um, I'd like to ask Sir Peter, uh, as our elected representative here on Earth in the city, um, where he thinks uh, we might get the leadership to close the gap between. Uh, that vitriol I was explaining that I uh, experienced on several occasions and the sober, sensible discussions that Tim and everybody else is having here. Um, are we going to get it? If we're going to get it, where it's going to come from? And casting an eye forward to next week where uh, various businesses I've been talking to in the city are preparing to have dressed, enforced dress-down days, restaurants closing, etc., etc., with a whole load of protests uh, due to kick off. Uh, this thing is going to become pretty urgent. Um, are we going to get leadership, and if so, where, where is it going to come from to close this gap between uh, public anger and, and reality? Indeed. Um, I'd like to follow the... In, in answering that, I'd like to follow the, the knife point, which I think is really important. Don't forget that all the bonuses that have been paid were nodded through by general meetings of shareholders. And even when shareholders didn't agree with what's happening, in monstrous cases like Marks and Spencer, where it's actually quite wrong to have the chairman and chief executive in one person, and institutions didn't like it, it never just got taken through. So the, the model of the joint stock company listed on the stock exchange where shareholders in the theory have power uh, isn't really working at all well. So we've got to do something there. And following through the knife idea may well be one. And as to um, where we go from here, well, um, following Peter York's point, I, people in the city, people in, in London, uh, don't realize the gap between rich and poor. Um, and uh, there's great anger in uh, out there in the constituencies, not just about bonuses, but I mean, it's one thing worse than a banker with a bonus. It's a member of parliament fiddling his expenses. Um, you know, members of parliament, I, I used to be a banker, and now I'm a politician. I mean, I'm not in a state, a, a not in a state, I'm not in a state age or a child molester, but I'm right up there with the. Well, look, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tracy, Tim, Alan, and Martin. And um, it'll be interesting to see how the, um, the G20 thing goes and what kind of public reaction there is going to be to that here in London. And so thanks to Cass and the Editorial Intelligence, and see you all again. Good morning. Thank you.